Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase. This is your host, Josh Rosenberg. Thanks for joining me. I want to thank all of those in the Roadcase community for supporting Roadcase. And if you haven't done so yet and are interested in joining the Roadcase community, you can do that in a number of different ways. You can join the party over at Patreon. We have a Patreon site at patreon.com slash roadcasepod. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, Patreon is a site where you can support independent artists and podcasts and the like by subscribing or various means, uh, dropping a couple bucks and really helps and helps me bring these episodes to you. You can also email me at info at roadcasepod.com, uh, send your comments, suggestions uh, for guests, and uh, just talk about music. Let me know uh, what you're up to. That'd be cool. Uh, we can also get in touch with me via the socials. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The handle is at roadcasepod. We also have a YouTube channel, and that's at roadcasepodcast on YouTube, and another Great way to support Roadcase is to rate and review us on your favorite listening platform. So wherever you're listening, you can just uh, throw in a couple or 10 stars and uh, write, a, uh, write a couple words. That would be really great. I appreciate that. So this week on Roadcase, I've got part two of the interview with Jay Blakesburg that I did recently. Uh, he sat down with me for quite a while. This is the back half of that interview. Uh, we start out talking about his experiences in doing portraits of Jerry Garcia. Uh, and we also talk about the kind of ins and outs technically of uh, portraiture for rock stars. Um, you know, uh, over the years, Jay's photographed uh, so many different uh, major figures in the music world from Neil Young to Jerry Garcia, uh, Carlos Santana. We get a great story about photographing John Fogarty, and they're always very unique photographs. I, I absolutely love Jay's photography. Um, and uh, we also talk a little bit more about his uh, live photography, uh, some of about his favorite venues and why, and capturing the scene of uh, live music, the fans and what goes on and what's, what, it, what it looks like to be on the crowd, uh, on the rail, for example, um, and how he likes to capture those, uh, those moments that happen at a show in the crowd and kind of reflecting on how that, uh, how he captures that kind of excitement of what it means to be at a rock show. And Jay's got a couple new books coming out through his company, Rock Out Books. Uh, you can also get more information about his books at blakesburg.com. Uh, one book that he's working on is on psychedelic icons, those individuals in the world of psychedelics that Jay has photographed over the years. Uh, second book that he is currently working on is a uh, visual history of blotter art, LSD blotter art that traditionally had uh, really interesting designs on that art and the stories behind those designs and the photos uh, of those uh, of that type of artistic uh, expression. So Jay's always got a lot of great stuff going on. 
I love his photography. Um, I can't say enough about Jay. Uh, he's just a super great guy as well, and I really enjoyed having him here. Uh, I know you'll enjoy this second part of this two-part interview with Jay Blakesburg, and I want to thank all of you for tuning in for this one. I want to thank uh, Jay once again for being here on Roadcase, and here we go. we talk about jerry for a minute sure i know you've got a lot of great grateful dead stories but he was kind of he seemed what i've read about what you've said about photos that you've taken of him that he was a little bit of a reluctant subject and just sort of didn't care he's been there done that million times and i'm talking about portraits when you're like right there with him i mean mm-hmm. you know your shots of him live are, are, are remarkable I'm also somehow, you know, we went down this road of like, let's capture the live music experience and how does that happen? But somehow your portraits of Jerry are just amazing. (laughs) And I I mean, what was, what was that like just shooting him being around that when you were a fan and um, trying to capture that moment? Did you, did you have a, did you understand kind of looking back now, there's a gravity to it at that point. Did you kind of feel that? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan, but by the time I got to the spot in my career where I was a pro photojournalist and I was, uh, I needed to separate Jay, the journalist from Jay, the deadhead, right. You know, like I wasn't going to walk into, a portrait session with Garcia and be like, Hey man, you know, I first saw you at English town in 77 when I was 15. And, you know, by the next year we were like dropping acid at regular show, you know, like that's not the conversation Garcia wants to have. So first of all, um, people like Garcia or Neil Young or Carlos Santana, or, you know, the rest of the CSN guys, or, you know, any number of artists, Roger Waters, et cetera, et cetera. These artists that have been around now for 50 plus years, they are so over the photo shoot, Dead & Co., Phil, Bob, Mickey, Bill. You know, my job as a photographer, if I get an assignment, whether it's from the band manager or or, or magazine cover or whatever it might be, is to come back with what I like to say is a brilliant photograph. Now, we don't always make brilliant photographs, but that's the goal. That's the bar, and that's where it's set. It's mm-hmm. set at brilliant, okay? Because... If you don't get close to brilliant or above brilliant, why would that person ever hire you again and pay you money? Okay. Yeah. Right. So you have to do so, you know, it's like this, this, you know, kind of joke, you know, Bob Weir looks at me, he's like, Jay, you've taken so many photos of you, of me, you know, what, you know, don't you have enough? And, 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 you know, and, and I look at him and I feel like I want, and I haven't said this to him yet, but I've, I've got it queued up, which is, you know. I every time I take a photograph of you, I want it to be the best photograph I take of you. Just like every time you play Sugar Magnolia, you want it to be the best Sugar Magnolia you've ever played. <laughs> Even though you've played that song live 2000 times, you want that to be the best Sugar Mag you've ever played. Yeah. I want it to be the best photo that I've ever taken. Right? So that's my approach. 
But these guys have been doing it for 50 years. They're so over the photo shoot, all they want to do is get in and out as fast as possible and as painless as possible. So you work with somebody like Neil Young, you might get three minutes. You might get two minutes to do a portrait of him. You better have your shit together to really pull that off. And there's no time for bullshitting around and no time for small talk. You know, it's like, Neil, stand here, put your hands like this, do this. And you got everything ready to go. Your light, your camera, your lens, whatever it is. Boom. You know, uh, I did a portrait of Neil Young back in 95 for a musician magazine. It was a kind of a renowned music music magazine. It wasn't for musicians. It was about musicians, right? Um, so, I mean, musicians, of course, read it, but it was called Musician Magazine. Uh, it was old. I think it was owned by Billboard Magazine at the time and uh, long, long gone. And uh, so I go down to the Mountain Home, which is this uh, uh, restaurant on Skyline Boulevard, south of San Francisco, about... 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And Neil is sort of camped out there for the day doing press um, for a new record he's got coming out, right? So he's meeting with, you know, he gets a photo shoot with Jay. He does a photo shoot with the San Francisco Chronicle. He does a photo shoot for the German magazine. He does an interview with this journalist. He does a phoner with that. It's all scheduled, it's all right? all just like one day just to knock it down. Yeah, right, one or two days. So I, I, I drive down. I'm going 50 miles an hour down the Skyline Highway, um, a little two-lane windy road. And all of a sudden, I didn't know where the mountain house was. It's pre-GPS. It come, I see the sign. I pull into the parking lot. I skid the brakes, and I skid across the gravel the gravel parking lot. And um, uh, this production assistant from MTV comes running over to me, and he's like, you know, putting his finger in front of his mouth. Shh, be quiet, be quiet. I'm like, dude, it's okay. I'm sorry. I'm stopped. The car's good. I'm not making any noise. So Kurt Loder from MTV is interviewing Neil Young. Mm-hmm. So they, so while they're doing that, I get my lights set up and get all my stuff organized to do my shot, my generator, get it all you know ready to go because I know that my time is coming up at one o'clock or whatever the shoot time is. Right. He finishes the uh, interview. Um, he does something else. He comes out of the mountain house. He sits down where I tell him to sit. And I do a Polaroid, a test Polaroid. That's how we used to test our lighting. You shoot a shot, oh, yeah, you pull yeah, it yeah. out of the Polaroid back. You have to wait 90 seconds for it to to um, uh, develop, right? And um, and then you can look at it, make sure your lighting is good, and you like the way he's sitting, right? It's sort of a necessary evil because I'm wasting 90 seconds of 10 minutes that they gave me to do this this portrait of him. So the publicist, a dear friend of mine named Bob Merlis, he was the head of Warner Brothers publicity for forever. He looks at me and right when Neil sits down, he looks at me, he goes, okay, you have 10 minutes and hits his watch. He's got a stopwatch on his watch. Wow. And walks away and he goes into the restaurant because he's got to go do whatever he's doing. And I shoot the Polaroid and, and while I'm waiting for it to develop, Kurt Loder from MTV comes back over and starts talking to Neil. And they get into this whole heavy conversation about whatever. I don't even remember what it was. Ten minutes goes by. Merlis comes out of the restaurant and says, okay, your ten minutes is up. You're done. And I look at him and I go, done? I shot one test Polaroid. And then Kurt and Neil started talking. And he goes, Kurt, get out of here. Neil, sit down. Jay, go. Resets his watch to ten minutes. And I shot him sitting down with some strobe lights with a Hasselblad for five minutes. I stood him up next to a tree and shot available light. I think I shot two rolls of film real quick and 35 millimeter. Right. Boom, 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 boom. And then I, and then he stood in front of one of his old vintage cars and I shot one last weird roll of art film that had 12 exposures on it mm-hmm. and 35 millimeter. And I was done. And that was it. 10 minutes and you're done. Right. I got three setups in 10 minutes and probably shot 
I don't know, 10 or 12 rolls of film or something like that altogether. Right. So that's, you know, that's how we go with people like that. Getting back to Jerry, Jerry was the same way. Jerry just wanted to get out of there and go have lunch. Right. Yeah. So, you know, but he was a trooper. He knew it was part of the job and he was never mean to me. Um, uh, I had one great conversation with him about the blues and John Lee Hooker. Um, and that was the, the, the a portrait session I did in 94. He showed up three days late. He was strung out on drugs. It wasn't wow. pretty. We really couldn't use many of the shots. He wore the wrong clothes. He was wearing these shorts. His legs were kind of bloated. It was a little sad. Um, uh, my last portrait of him was in 95, about three or four months before he died, <clears throat> April 17th, 1995. He was making an MTV video for a song that was on a soundtrack to a movie. And um, I got like a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with him for just like a minute, you know, hey, Jer like in between takes, hey, let me get a shot of you. Look at me kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like all my portrait sessions with him were always very quick. Uh, the best one might have been at David Grisman's house in 93 all right. mm -hmm. when it was the cover of Acoustic Guitar Magazine. And I knew from previous experience of shooting Jerry in 91 and 92 that he hated getting his photo taken or just didn't have a lot of patience for it. Didn't necessarily hate it. He was just over it. And so uh, I knew the best thing to do was just give him a guitar and let him play. And he sat for me for 45 minutes, right. which was amazing. And so he just started playing music and I'm shooting him and David Grisman for the cover of the magazine and Grisman and him are jamming and they just put out a new record. So Jerry starts singing right It's me, the writer and my assistant, I think we're the only ones in the room with Garcia and Grisman and Jerry's like singing a private concert to me and these three, two, these two other people in the room. And I look at Garcia and I go, Jerry, I'm shooting a magazine cover. I need you to not sing because your mouth will be all funny shaped if you're singing. So can you just hum the songs in your head? I'm like the only guy ever to like <laughs> right, tell Jerry to tell Garcia him. to like stop singing. And it's like <laughs> a private concert in a living room for me. Right. But, you know, again, again, so I couldn't be the, I couldn't be the deadhead. You know, I couldn't be the, um, I couldn't be that guy. I had to be very professional, but of course I'm freaking out because I'm like, it's Jerry fucking Garcia. Yeah. And this is the man that changed my life. The music that he wrote with the lyrics of Robert Hunter and the shows that I went to and the drugs that I took with my friends right. and blew my mind with him and his band. And now I'm like face to face with him. So you weren't able and to I ever have a substantive conversation about that kind of level or ask him any questions about his creative process or anything like that. Did I ask? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, like, no, there's no time for that. Yeah, you know? yeah. 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 No, 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 no. You know, I mean like when I was shooting in with Garcia Grisman, the writer was there. So any questions that got interjected were more things that he was thinking about for the article. Like it's really not my place right. in a situation like that. He already, well, we've, been, we've been talking about journalism so much. All of a sudden I like, I'm sorry, I forgot you were a photographer for a second. <laughs> I'm like, right. so, <laughs> you know, and, and, but, but another portrait session I did with him in 92 for Rolling Stone magazine was backstage. Not, it wasn't a stage, but it was the green room of an art gallery where he was doing an art exhibit. And um, I think there was me and one or two or three journalists that were all sort of lobbing him questions 
And I was just kind of shooting candid photos. And then I got his attention for like one roll of film where he looked at me. And so there's a handful of shots where he's looking right at me and has a really big, beautiful smile and, and stuff like that. But in general, he was just sort of engaged in this conversation with the journalists that were there. And, and, uh, I wish I could go back and find some of those articles, um, just to kind of remember what they were all talking about. Well, also there's the one where, you know, like peering over his glasses kind of shot really, uh, really tight. that's beautiful. That's a of, phenomenal shot. That shot that you're talking about, I think there there is a shot from that session, but I think one you're talking about was the one that I shot for the Golden Road magazine, which is a Grateful Dead fanzine. Yeah, and yeah, that was yeah. a, a story about him and Robert Hunter being interviewed together for uh, one of I think only two times ever. Right. And that was I did the photos for that. So But yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. scary. You know, I feel very blessed that I got you know, four or five opportunities to be one-on-one face-to-face with Garcia. You know, the very first time I did it, I sort of blew it a little bit with my exposure on some color film because mm. it was 87. It was on the on the set of the Throwing Stones video, right. um, which I snuck onto, you know, I just snuck onto Right, the I read that, that you lived across the street from the gym or something like, uh, Jay, how many times are you in the right place at the right time, right, man? Right like, you start, I start to like thinking about like, what is this? What is this guy? Like, you know, right. he's always it's in the right the place at the right time. Mojo, man. Psychedelic mojo. Yeah, um, right. It was a uh, abandoned high school across the street, literally from where I lived. And I got a tip they were filming it that day. And I literally just packed up my cameras and all my film and walked on set and just stayed there for like eight hours while they filmed this video. Wow. But one of my most. I wish I shot like another 20 rolls of film, but you know, I was still young. Well, those amazing access stories, like one of the ones that I'm most inspired by is the Atlantic Records thing when you just like swung a lanyard around your neck, I think I read and like, just walked in like you own the joint because that's a page out of my playbook, man. I'm just like, okay, yeah, if you just act like you belong and just keep moving. Yeah. So the, that was the 40th anniversary of Atlantic Records, and it was a big concert at Madison Square Garden. And I won a trip there from a local radio station, KFOG. KFOG doesn't yeah, exist yeah, anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. A couple of years ago. And uh, so I mailed in two postcards. They pulled my postcard out of a hat, out of a bag, sent me off to New York City to go to this, right? I owned one laminate, and it was a laminate for a a marathon Olympic marathon trial when I was in college in 84, right? So at the 84 Olympics was the first time ever there was a women's marathon event at the Olympics, wherever they were that year. In 84, they were in Los Angeles because I was a high school sophomore working the, uh, or a college sophomore at UCSB. And I got a summer job work doing some bullshit for the Olympics. I was a baggage handler at the international terminal at LAX for the people that would come off for all the athletes that would come off the plane. So I know, yeah, it was in Los Angeles. (laughs) So the, the, the trial race for that to determine who the three women are that would go to the Olympics. And the one of the women who ended up winning the gold medal, I believe was Joan Joan Benoit, Sam Samuelson. Yeah. Or Joan Benoit. Yeah. I think at the time she was still just Joan. She's from Boston or something. Yeah. And so they did the, 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 the trial race and this guy that I was doing, that I was working for at the time, deadhead guy who had a photography business, he got hired to document some of that. And so they gave us these laminates that gave us access. Right. So there's two parts to this story. So the first part is, is that when the race was over and the three women that were going to go to the Olympics were up on the podium, there were all these photographers down front and they were all from 
Runner's World magazine and Sports Illustrated and Sport and the New York Times. This was a big deal. The Olympics were finally getting a women's marathon, right? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, well, why it took till '84 for that to happen is beyond me. But um, anyway, so I'm down front in front of the stage, and there's this guy standing next to me, and he's I go, "Who do you shoot for?" And I'm dressed in like purple Guatemalan clothes and a purple beret and have a man purse over my shoulder with film in it. You know, I'm in co- long hair, beard. I'm a total fucking freak. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I turn to the guy next to me. He's got, you know, six cameras around his neck, long lenses, short lenses. And he's a short guy. Like I'm five, six. He was probably five foot three and he probably weighed 200 pounds. And I go, who do you shoot for? And he goes, ah, sports illustrated. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. Like, man, that's just so cool. Sports illustrated. So the three women get up on the podium to get their medals and up on the podium is the governor of the state of Washington and the sports illustrator guy standing next to me yells up to the stage. He says, governor, get off the stage. You're ruining my photo. And I looked at him (laughs) and I thought to myself, I want to someday be able to tell the fucking governor of Washington to get off the stage and out of my picture because he's ruining it because that's when I knew the photographers rule the path. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so it was a it was a pivotal moment for me. But I took that lanyard a couple of years later when I won that trip. It was yellow. I still have it somewhere. And I literally walked backstage at Madison Square Garden, walked up to the front of the stage and shot Led Zeppelin performing. And it just kind of got me everywhere. And and um, you wow. know, that's just that's just kind of how we rolled. Yeah, that's the whole access thing, man. But I got to tell you, I have down here, you know, I have some notes. I'm going to, I'm not going to lie. I have down here that you're, that photographers are almost as powerful as the artists themselves because they're capturing that fleeting moment forever. You know, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're as powerful as the artists. The artists are what the people that are performing and we're there to, we should be there. You're to capturing quietly. it. You're, you're, and you're taking yeah. that moment and that moment is living forever. Right. So my analogy with the Sports Illustrated guy was more in the sense that if you're doing a portrait session, you're in control. When the band is on stage, they're in control. Yeah. And we always have to remember that being on stage is is not a right. It is always a privilege, no matter who you are and who you're friends with, the manager, the band, the roadie, whatever it is. It is a privilege to be up on that stage. It is never, ever a right. And I never forget that. No matter who the band is and what I and what festival I'm shooting for or who I'm shooting for, I always fully understand that it is a privilege for me to be there. And so, but when I'm doing a portrait session or I'm doing something where I'm in control of uh-huh. what the scene is and how I want it lit yeah. or where I want people to stand or if I want extras in it or not extras in it, or if there's a, a, a pedestrian in the background or I want a car moved, that's sort of the power that I'm referring to is the power to be creative and let your imagination go wild and be in control of that. Whereas, you know, on stage, you're at the mercy of the shutter speed, the light, the action, the movement. Whereas when you're doing a portrait session, you can tell somebody, um, you know, it's a funny story. I was shooting um, the band, the Bare Naked Ladies, mm-hmm. for their big hit record, Stunt. That was their breakout record. That was the one where they had um, uh, Chinese Chicken, you know, that song, right? And uh, and I was nominated for a Juno Award for that CD. Oh, package. nice. That's a Canadian Grammy, for those of you guys who don't know. And, um, you know, we were, and my photos were on the cover. And uh, Tyler, the drummer, dear friend who I love to pieces, you know, he was standing somehow 
And um, and I and maybe his arms are folded or unfolded. I don't remember. He always reminds me of this whenever I see him because I only see him every few years. And uh, I told him a different way to stand. Move your body this way. And, 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 <laughs> and, he, and he said to me, why? During the shoot. And I looked at him. I said, because you look like a dork. And we, have a, we get a great <laughs> laugh over that all every time we see each other, every few years, because that was my initial meeting of this guy who's been my friend now for 25 years, right? You know, is that I told Tyler, the drummer, that he looked like a dork the way he was standing and I was changing the way he was standing because it's my job to make him look good. All right. And that's why I did that. But it was just like one of those classic, classic moments. So, yeah, right, right, um, right. That's the power, the power to be creative and to, to have that control in that situation. Well, and then you're talking <laughs> about how, you know, it's a privilege to be to get the access that you have. It's never a right. Is that I'm kind of drawing that from what you were saying. I mean, what, when do you actually get into any conflicts being back, bang back on stage or side stage or anywhere with a band, or you just kind of, cause I see you moving around and that's when you're getting the shots. That's when, you know, you're differentiating yourself, but you're differentiating yourself because you've been in the business for so long that you're gaining that access. So, right. you know, for, at, at the beginning of this conversation, you were talking about, well, if everyone's going right, you got to go left. I mean, you know, that's why no one's buying your photos, but then you're, you're getting access that no one's getting access to. I'm like, I'm sitting on right. the rail at a jacket show, taking a picture with my shitty fucking iPhone. And like Jay's back there. I'm like, God, that motherfucker, man, he's getting the fucking greatest goddamn <laughs> shots at Jim. Like you're up between Jim's legs on the stage. <laughs> no, I mean, right. you know, yeah, like be so, right on Patrick so, and stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you it's, don't want to get in anybody's way. You don't want to distract the band. You don't want to distract the audience. You really, you, you really do need to try your hardest to, you know, to not really draw a lot of attention. No, you're um, not. I mean, you know, for me, like I'm a fan of you. So I'm like looking at what you're, how you're working. Yeah, at and, and I it. think that that has happened with a lot of people. There are people that have become fans of me and they, and they look forward to seeing my shots. And I think they want to keep an eye on me when they can, because they may be like, Oh, I remember when you took that shot, you know, oh, like yeah. at Red Rocks when the, when the mirrored ball and, you know, and there's a shot and, you know, and they remembers where I was standing and they're like, oh, I remember when you got that shot, you know? So my goal is to try and remain as invisible as possible until I'm trying to get the bow shot where I'm up on the drum riser. Yeah, because at yeah. that point, there's no way to, to hide it. But right. my goal is to try not to draw attention to that, you know, wear black clothes or dark clothes. You know, like I'm not out there, except for on Halloween, I'm not out there like a fluorescent shirt, you know. Yeah. That's the only time I would do something like that. But otherwise, you know, you want to just blend in as much as possible and not not make a scene and not take, you know, it's about the band. It's not about me. Yeah. But for me, it's about getting the photograph. And so, you know, sometimes I'm just like crouched behind an amp just waiting because I know it's coming. Right. But I don't want to just be above the amp with my camera to my eye, not taking photos. So I might just like kneel down, be behind an amp. Nobody can really see me, right? Except for maybe the roadies or the manager or whoever. Yeah. And I'm not a distraction. And I know it's coming. I know it's coming. I know those strobe lights are coming. I know that that right. Carl is about to fucking jump and and they're going to blow everybody's mind. I'm waiting. And <laughs> then I jump up and I get the shot. Right. And then I get back out, you know, like, yeah, yeah I I'm going to hang out. I'm going to hang out. I want people to see me. Aren't I cool? Like, that's not my agenda at all, ever. Do you have favorite venues? Yeah, like, do you, I do. I mean, do you, like, do you like Red Rocks and are there certain challenges? And do you like to go back into the back of the venue so and love, take, like, lights, Rocks. shots? So the most challenging 
venues are the ones that have the highest stages. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's typically a festival. Like most arena stages are five feet high. But right? we're talking most- about now you're saying you're, you're talking about being in the pit, right? Yes. Obviously the height of the stage doesn't matter if you're on the stage, right? So we're talking Correct. first three song scenario, Jay's working with all the normal guys in the pit, right? Right. But no, but I also shoot in the pit a lot of times, like, like my morning jacket. At oh, you'll come around like during any time. I don't think I ever yeah. even went on stage at lock-in for my morning jacket. I think I stayed in the pit the whole time. Uh-huh. You know, I liked that angle. I had a little step ladder. I was able to get up. So right. again, it just depends on the, on the, you know, stage height is a big thing. So Red Rocks, the There's stage no, is yeah. one foot off the ground. Right. It's not even right? really like, it's just right yeah. there. Like right? yeah, shoreline amphitheater. It's, three feet off the ground. Yeah. Um, Jones beach is four feet off the ground, you know? So the lower the stage, the better, obviously I love red rocks because it's beautiful and the rocks and the sunset and, you know, depending on the time of year and yeah. it's majestic and it's magical. You know, yeah. Red rocks is definitely an Epic venue that I adore. And I feel honored that I've been able to shoot there as much as I have, um, uh, you know, love all the promoters that work in that, that, that venue and, you know, Don Strasberg and Eric Barrett and, you know, and, and, uh, uh, um, Pirate, I think is pronounced maybe, um, mm-hmm. from Live Nation. I mean, you know, these guys are incredible and they're bringing incredible shows and they're giving, you know, giving me access or the bands are. Um, so I love Red Rocks, you know, I love the Greek theater in Berkeley, but I hate it because the stage is like seven feet high. Yeah. It's really right? high there. Oh. Stage in Berkeley, but I hate shooting in front of the stage in Berkeley. Okay. Um, uh, uh Love the Capitol Theater in Port Chester. The stage is three feet high. Right. You know, it's like waist high. Right. It's not chin high. It's waist high. Yeah. Right. So for me, I like to be able to see people's feet when I'm shooting them, the artists. Yeah. Right. I want right. to be like, to me, that's a thing. Like, if you can see their feet head to toe, you know, whereas like in the Greek theater, if you're shooting up, you're only getting them like the waist up. Right. So right. Yeah, that's I, true. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, so it's it's that's that's all part of it. So, how um, often do you go back and shoot like lights and like the lighting shows and when they're like uh, shooting I lights off the back? Almost, I, I try and do it almost every show that I do where it's a band that I'm shooting a whole show. You know, the other thing is that lighting directors are my friends because lighting directors go hand in hand with what I do. Right. Brilliant lights make brilliant photographs. Yeah. Right. So you know you have um uh you know the, the, you know, the, the, these lighting directors, um, are just, you know, in, incredible, you know, Mark who does, um, uh, you know, my morning jacket, he's brilliant. And he does, you know, he does tray and, um, uh, I'm trying to think what else does, was, does Mark do? Um, uh, maybe Grace Potter he's mm, done, I'm not sure, know, but, yeah. you know, but he does, but the big ones are Trey and, and Jacket, and Mark is a brilliant lighting director. Chris Reagan, who's been doing Dead & Co. for years and does Lock-In, brilliant lighting director. Manny, the young kid that does um, uh, Pigeons, incredible, you know? Yeah, they're so amazing. Jefferson Waffle, who was doing Umphreys until he retired from lighting and wanted to get off the road, you know, incredible. And, of course, you know, the, 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 the granddaddy of them all in our world is, you know, Chris Carota from Fish. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I know I'm leaving out a lot of names because, you know, all these guys look up to people like Carota and Janowitz and, and, and uh, you know, Jason Liggy and uh, um, uh, Liggy Liggett, right? Jason Liggett, who used to do Grace Potter. You know, so some of these guys are just, you know, incredible. 
um, uh, you know, widespread panics, LD, um, you know, Paul Hoffman, incredible, right? Um, the Mo guy, you know, his brother, Preston Hoffman, you know, there's so many great LDs out there, um, that, you know, what they do goes hand in hand with, with what I do. Right. Right. But Janowitz is really one of my favorites who does the jacket and tray. He really is. He really, really gets it. <clears throat> so I like to go back and get his lighting shots for him as much as for me. Oh, you know, yeah. It's, uh-huh. part the, it's part of the overall thing for me to capture and document. But I like doing it for the lighting guys because they want to see what their stuff looks like also. Well, for Jacket, are there a couple of songs in particular that you like? Just because I'm a fan. Like, okay, we won't go too da- deep down that rabbit hole. But will you back go back into the you know back of the house and like... Uh, for particular songs for jacket or you'll just do it when you kind of have the time. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, hang on a second here. Um, yeah. And sometimes I'll even talk to the LD and they'll be like, Hey, this would be a great song to come back and shoot the front of the house. You know? Yeah. And like at the Capitol, like at the Capitol theater in Portchester, you know, they do all those projections on the walls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Like when Phil is playing, like I'll meet with them before the show and say, Hey, when they, you know, I see the set list, I'll say, Hey, when they're playing St. Stephen, will you put steal your faces up on the wall? Right. So then I know they're going to be up there for that song and I could be in the back of the room or on the stage or whatever. Right. You know, it's cheating a little bit, but hey, you, you know, know, that's how you get the shot. Right. right you know, yeah. <laughs> you work it, And then you send them the pictures and they have it for their portfolio and everybody's happy. You know, there you go. There so. you go. I really like when we were talking before about the cultural anthropology and that really strikes a chord because, you know, I look at the live live music experience and that's kind of what it is. I mean, you're at shows, people are enjoying themselves. They're dancing, maybe, you know, even, you know, more interestingly, you were talking about phones and there not being any phones, but, um, can you talk a little bit about that? I love how you've, um, how, you know, you've done the hippie chicks book and, um, uh, and we'll get into, we'll talk a little bit about the, the books that you have coming up, but capturing the scene is so important. And, you know, it, that's kind of almost, um, that's really what live music is. I mean, there's, there's live performance, there's fans, everyone's there. It's like, what does that look like? You know, your, your pictures of people lock in on the rail. You took an amazing picture of me on the rail at forest Hills, uh, last August that I loved, you know, um, what does that mean to you and how important is that? Super, super, super important because to me, the live music experience is that connection between fan and, and, and band. And so because I typically get to shoot more than three songs, I can spend a little bit of time shooting more fan stuff because I can, I'm not wasting, you know, a half a song, you know, sometimes the people that are shooting in the pit that only have three songs are shooting the band, the band, the band. And then all of a sudden it's the end of the song and they turn around real quick when everybody goes, yeah, but like for me, you know, shooting the, excuse me, shooting the audience you've got to have light on the audience. Right. And so, um, yeah, at the end of the song, it might be bright and you might get that, but to get those pictures of people like you or your friends or other people raging on the rail, sometimes you're on stage and you're waiting and you see that light and you see that moment, or sometimes you're in the pit or wherever it is, or sometimes you're just deciding I'm going to go walk around and do a loop because the light is perfect. And it's a, it's a dusk, you know, daylight dusk show. And I know there's just great stuff going on. And I just love capturing that vibe, you know, in yeah. the, in the nineties in the mid nineties, when I was shooting a lot of 
<clears throat> more intense rock and roll, Rage Against the Machine and Sonic Youth and and uh, you know Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. Um, I loved shooting stage divers and moshers and 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 people in the pit that were you know had a lot of angst and a lot of energy. Um, and I have a lot of stuff like that. So it's not just, you know, beautiful, flowery, hippie chicks and, you know, cool dudes with long hair and gray beards, you know, raging, you know, to their favorite bands. It's like, yeah. you know, real intense rock and roll moments and black leather and sweat. And, 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 uh, so, you know, for me, it's super important. And, uh, you know, I have thousands upon thousands of photos like that, um, that capture that side of, the equation. And to me, it's just as important as, you know, the band on stage. Uh, yeah, no. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the, 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 the new books that you have coming out. Um, is that, is that those are kind of like, uh, those are COVID projects or were you planning on doing well, those before? Or? Yeah. So, so I, so I, so I, I was starting a book that was going to come out in October. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we had I sort of started on it pre COVID, um, and it's a book on psychedelic icons. So people that I photograph that are oh, iconic okay. in the psychedelic world. Right. So the, so unfortunately, you know, it doesn't include, let's say Albert Hoffman, the guy who, you know, discovered and, you know, LSD because I never photographed him, but I have photographed Ken Kesey and Tim Leary and Owsley Stanley and, you know, but also other psychedelic icons are people like Jerry Garcia and Terrence McKenna and Dr. James Fadiman, who was doing LSD experiments at Stanford in 1961, oh, you right. know, from mm -hmm. the CIA and, and, uh, you know, uh, Denise Kaufman and Ken Babs and George Walker, who, and M M Mountain Girl, who were all merry pranksters on the bus right. with Keezy. I interviewed right. Denise like, for, uh, I interviewed Denise for this show too, recently. Excellent. Yeah. Denise is great. Yeah, I shot she's the awesome. most record, the, the Ace of Cups. I shot the, the most recent record. Oh, cool. And so, um, and so, we started doing, you know, I, I hired a writer, uh, the same woman who wrote all the text for my hippie chick book. Um, I hired her to write the text for this book on psychedelic icons. Mm. She got COVID in early January. The deadline for the text was like March 1st. And after she got better from COVID, she became what's known as a long hauler, which Aye. is people that still have um, lingering effects yeah. and, and, and uh, are still affected by COVID weeks if not months if not a year after they had it right and so she has no energy and she had she couldn't think straight and her brain was foggy and this is real stuff she's 40 years old i think yeah. and 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 was in excellent health and got covid and has not really come out of it and she could not meet the deadline for the text mm. um she just couldn't couldn't do it she couldn't do do the research she needed to do read the material she needed. So we had to postpone that book. In the meantime, I connected with a guy here in San Francisco who I actually photographed for the Psychedelic Icons book. And it's a guy named Mark McLeod. And Mark McLeod runs uh, what I lovingly call the Blotter Acid Museum here in San Francisco. <laughs> he calls it the Institute of Illegal Images. And it's uh, the history of blotter art. And so I photographed him for my Psychedelic Icons book, um, because he is a psychedelic icon and, uh, and we became friends and we started talking about, <clears throat> um, uh, actually I called him up because I needed some blotter to photograph for a, a film documentary that I'm working on with my son, uh, that I sort of alluded to a little bit earlier in this conversation. I needed to photograph some blotter art that we needed as, as 
you know, B-roll imagery in this documentary film. And I went over and I sat down with him and started talking with him. And he's just a, a wealth of information about the history of blotter acid art mm-hmm. and the history of LSD in general. And I borrowed some stuff and we talked for an hour and he just blew my mind. And then I went back to deliver the blotter after I was done. And I said, do you have any newspaper articles about people getting arrested for drugs? And he goes, yeah, you know, come back next next week and I'll find some for you. But we hung out when I dropped the stuff off for an hour, an hour and a half, and he blew my mind. And then I came back to get the newspaper articles. And then I looked at him and go, should we do a book on the blotter art? He goes, yes. Hmm. And so that is the other book that I'm working on right now in the psychedelic world. It is a, you know, the book of illegal images. Um, so what, what kind of images are on and blotter is, is, or are these sheets that they put acid hits on, right? That can be broken up and yeah, perforate. I'm not, I, I've never done acid. I don't know. You know, you, you're an expert at it. <laughs> <laughs> Infamously or not, you know, I'm an expert by default. Sorry. Um, uh, I, Yes, blotter LSD is paper that's perforated and has art designs on it, whether it's a butterfly or a Saturn or a picture of Jerry Garcia's face or Tim Leary or, you know, and, and over the years, you know, in the, in, the, in the 80s and the 90s, it got very elaborate with art and the art became the brand, right? That's how you knew who you were getting your LSD from. It was oh, their interesting. brand. You know? uh-huh. They did the yin-yangs or they did the Saturns or they did the oblong op art or they did the you know alice in wonderlands or whatever but you didn't step be. on the you didn't step on the toes of someone else that was producing this you didn't put like dancing bears on there because that was what owsley was doing or well or how did that dancing, work there is dancing bear lsd blotter that was popular in 80 and 81 and the guy who made it was a guy named neil stabal and he's been dead for 30 years and he was the guy who was making the dancing bear blotter lsd Oh, okay. That wasn't from the 60s. No, that was, no. So blotter LSD actually really didn't start coming about until the 70s. There was a couple of blotters that happened in the late, late 60s. But before that, it was mostly pills that they were pressing and um, and and gels, for you know, window pane, they called it, gels. Mm-hmm. And that was the primary, and liquid LSD, of course. And that was the primary way of taking LSD in the 60s. And then the late 60s, it started appearing on blotter and sometimes it was just plain white paper. Sometimes uh, it was on like this paper that had these blue dots on it that looked like graphic design paper before we use computers to do graphic design. When you used to have to cut and paste text and lay it on these boards with these blue lines that were uh-huh. for registration. Um, so that was some of the first blotter LSD in the late sixties. And then the seventies, you know, like in the mid seventies, there was steal your face blotter LSD Right. Um, and, uh, and so he has an incredible collection. Um, he's been arrested twice for his collection. It's all, he's been acquitted twice, arrested twice. So arrested um, for his con- collection. Is this actual hits of acid on this active hits? Well, of acid? It was, but it's, it's all been neutralized, you know, by using special lighting and stuff like that. I mean, you know, huh. you know, it's so, I mean, we're talking, you know, drug enforcement agency arresting him and confiscating his art collection and testing it in the labs and it being proven that it's he was right, right and right. his art, you know, having people that have written um, catalogs for blotter acid exhibits that have gone that have been part of like major museums in our country, 
you know, so it, it, it is, it is art. It is an art and it is yeah. a collectible art. And so, you know, like I'm, I'm jumping into the NFT world. I don't know if you know what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm releasing some, uh, blotter art NFTs that I, that I had from my collection, my personal collection of blotter art, which is a very small collection, but that's where we're starting and hoping that Mark will, you know, get involved with some of his collection. Um, Interesting. Uh, but I'm releasing NFTs of like Snoop Dogg and Jerry Garcia and, you know, other things like that. So that's, that's coming up pretty soon here. Um, uh, getting into the digital art space a little bit, but uh, uh, so anyway, so the blotter art thing is incredibly fascinating. He has a, a, a vast collection of blotter art and ephemera that goes with it. And the original um, film stats, they, they used to print it on it and, uh, you know, the printing houses and uh, a lot of, he has a deep, deep archive of psychedelic memorabilia. And so that's the book that we're working on. Um, I've got a couple other book ideas that are kicking around in my head. I just haven't really gotten them going because I thought that the psychedelic icons book really was going to come out this year. Um, and uh, there's a couple of Kickstarter books I'm working on with a couple other photographers that might come out this year, but they won't be my books. Um, right. uh, I really, I, we're, we'll get back to the psychedelic icons book. And I think that that book and the blotter book might come out at the same time about a year from now. Are there still these uh, psychedelic icons that are still alive now? Or are these un- well, kind of, well, you know who the merry pranksters are, right? Yeah, for sure. Right. Right. So Ken Babs, uh, George Walker, mountain girl, all were on the bus with Keezy in 64. Yeah, so it was Denise. Yeah. 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 So they're all alive. Denise coffin from the Ace of cups. And right. uh, yeah, you know, many of them are, are still alive, but you know, like, the poster artists from the sixties, you know, they're, they're called the big five mouse, Kelly, Griffin, Moscoso, Wilson. Um, all of them are dead except for Wilson and mouse Two of them yeah. are alive. Three of them are dead. You know, their art, you know, was, was super iconic in the psychedelic world. You know, all those posters for the Fillmore and the Avalon and the winterland in the sixties and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, so there's, you know, uh, Terrence McKenna. Do you know that name? Yeah. Yeah, Terrence- for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he is to like mushrooms to what Tim Leary is to LSD. Right. He's deceased, but I did portraits of him. So we've got him, we got Leary, we got Owsley, we got Keezy. Um, you know, we got some, I got some heavy hitters in there that are, um, uh, you know, people that, you know, Allen Ginsberg was taking LSD for the CIA in the late, in the early sixties. He was part of the same experiments that, um, uh, Keezy was doing when he wrote one flew over the cuckoo's nest and, and yeah. uh, David Nelson and from the New Riders and Robert Hunter, the lyricist for the Grateful Dead, they were all taking LSD that the CIA were giving them as part of these experiments. And and Ginsburg was part of that. And he was a beat poet who was moving into the psychedelic world and and and, and transforming into the hippies with all the hippies. And so, you know, there's that whole thread that that we're gonna touch on. So the book is still, you know, the book is still in development, so to speak. I mean, the Hells Angels have a history with psychedelics and, and uh, you know, in the 60s. And so there's, you know, there's a little bit of Hells Angels action going on in the in there that we were trying to figure out how to weave into the into the story. So and um, so what was like th- those are those are themes that you've been talking about for a long time. I mean, obviously, you know, you were deadhead. You were taking acid at shows. Um, what? Why now for this, for that kind of, is that sort of a, was it a COVID project Is something that's been lingering for quite a while and well, you sort of, what are you bringing to it? That's unique. 
Well, I think what I'm bringing it to it that's unique is that I'm bringing sort of the, you know, the, the text for each of these people. It's not going to be like, you know, Jerry Garcia was a member of the Grateful Dead and, you know, and they took a lot of LSD and that makes him a psychedelic icon. We're right. trying to come up with angles uh, and stories about these people that talk about why they are a psychedelic icon, not how they became one, but why they are a psychedelic icon. Mm -hmm. And so there's stories behind these people about how they got there, you know, the the pranksters and the bus trip. And, you know, we don't want to be like, you know, Timothy Leary was a professor at Harvard University and started doing LSD experiments and, you know, broke out and one day came up with this great slogan, turn on, tune in and drop out. Like, you know, we all know that about Timothy Leary. Yeah. We want to try and find something else about why you know, but but why now? Uh, I think there's a huge interest in the history of psychedelic art and behavior. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it came into the mainstream, what, three, four, five years ago when the New York Times and all these other magazines started talking about people microdosing and right. famous authors and, and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs were doing, you know, micro doses of LSD and how, you know, they're starting to um, do research again on LSD for depression and people who are at the end of their lives that are on their deathbeds and, um, you know, those transitions. And so um, I think that there's important um, uh, qualities to LSD today that are more accepted, you know, like when we were dropping LSD as young teenagers in the you know, late seventies, mid late seventies, early eighties, and and you know, cruising around looking like hippies. You know, people would be like, "Don't you know that you know disco's in and the yuppies are taking over?" And you know, the hippies died in nineteen sixty nine after Woodstock and Altamont, and you know, and 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 you know, my philosophy was like, "Well, I just took some LSD and it's nineteen eighty, and I blew my mind, and it was the greatest thing ever." So you're wrong, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and and so. Um, you know, you couldn't talk about it back then openly the way that we can talk about it now because it's a lot more acceptable, right? It's been accepted. Like I used to not talk about the fact that I went to prison for LSD in public, you know, a number of years ago because it just wasn't right, you know, and now, you know, people don't look at me and they say, oh my God, Jay was in prison for LSD when he was 20 years old, you know, he's got to be an evil person who's completely whacked out of his mind. Well, yeah, I am a little whacked out of my mind, but I mean, in general, <laughs> well, we all you know, know that, but I mean, you know, so you think all... that people are, were judging you differently then than they I are think, now. I what was that turning? Judging... What was the turning point personally for you? I think people were judging everybody who took psychedelics differently until recently. I think that, you know, Michael Pollan wrote the book on microdosing and he's on NPR with Terry Gross, right? And, <laughs> right. and you know, middle America is listening to NPR and and listening to these stories and they're saying to themselves hmm i remember that lsd drug from the 60s well maybe it doesn't sound so bad and i've had some depression issues maybe i should try microdosing you know we're as opposed to like oh my god those freaks who are taking lsd and jumping off of buildings and you know thinking right, that right, they're right. Jesus christ and whatever you know all the preconceived you know bullshit um, that, yeah. you know, stereotypes that people put on people who took psychedelics. Yeah. My reefer, my reefer madness was like the book, go ask Alice, where it was this woman who like freaked out and like of someone course. took my fucking fifth grade teacher told me to read this book. And I was like, freaked out, man. Like what yeah. the God, Did, I'm don't so. You remember when, don't you remember when go ask Alice was a, a TV made for TV movie? Like, you know, 
Yeah, um, I think uh, that's and she like claw she was stuck in a closet and like scraped off her fingers and at the end yeah, she had like, these bands. Well, like, Do you yeah, remember that? All, it's yeah, fucked up. Yeah. And then of course, you know, they were like they were hippies and they were dirty and so you know, they were like at some outdoor restaurant in LA or whatever. And some family got up and left their scraps of their sandwiches and French fries and the hippies sat down and started eating their food. And <laughs> we were like in fifth grade, like you said, and we're like, Ooh, gross. Right, you know, right, they're hippies. Right. They took drugs. They took LSD. And, you know, and, and nowadays we're like, you know, if you know, and uh, you've never done it, so you don't know, but, um, um, you know, someday you're, Children Micro, might do micro dosing, though, it. man, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. So yeah, so it's a, it, it's a whole thing, and the stigmatism behind it all, I think, has has shifted to the point where, um, uh, you know, that it's more acceptable. I mean, it's still illegal, and I don't, you know, I have I have microdosed over the last few years. It's been several years now since I've done that. You know, I'm not a regular tripper. But 40 years ago, I was, you know, yeah. 45 years ago, I was, it was a big part of my life and it helped, you know, define who I am and who I was and who I've become. And, um, you know, it inspired me creatively as a photographer and, um, it, you know, it took me out of, um, you know, psychedelics and photography for me took me, got me out of New Jersey and got me out of, you know, staying in New Jersey for my whole life and showed me that there was this whole other world sort of waiting to be cracked open uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta crack some eggs if you want to make an omelet. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, but, but now what surprised me is to read that you are clean, that you're not even, you're not drinking. I mean, I'm not, I'm not personally, I don't drink either that very much at all, but I mean, but I like smoke weed. I mean, you're not even like smoking weed now or like, how, like tell me about that a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I don't drink alcohol because I just, you know, my drug of choice back in the days when I did that was psychedelics. Um, I stopped smoking pot when I got arrested in 1981. So I haven't smoked pot in 40 years. Wow. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, I just don't like alcohol. I don't like what it does to other people. I don't really like, I mean, I don't mind people drinking around me. I just don't like dr really drunk. Oh yeah. I, I just like being around like super drunk people at shows is just the worst. Yeah, and that's it. It's, it's the major, it's the one biggest contributor to show talking. In, in, yeah. In, it just doesn't interest me. It doesn't interest me to be around people like that. And it doesn't interest me to become like that. And, uh, and so now I'm, that weed's I'm, legal, you know, no. Yeah. I mean, I'm a hundred percent clean and sober, you know, with, I guess, you know, who knows? I might tech, do a microdose in a year or two or three. You know, if somebody has one and offers it to me, I don't have any of that stuff, you know, but there's yeah. plenty of people that have it around if, you know, if you're in the right place and they're at the right moment and it all, the stars yeah. align, then I might just say, okay, sure. <laughs> so you know, I mean, you're not closing know. the door on that. <laughs> no, and, 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 you know, when you microdose, sometimes you can't even feel it. It just sort of like brightens you up a little bit. Right. right lightens the it's, mood. It's therapy. It's, it, it can be used as therapy. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm clean and sober and, um, you know, I get turned on and, 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 and feel good when I take pictures and, and blow people's minds with interesting, engaging photographs. Yeah. Well, that that you do but to come a little bit full circle um where are you seeing like, we're so much into the jam band scene for lack of a better word the scene that you're into what you came into where you operate professionally where are we on the spectrum right now like what like 
there was dead, there's fish, there's all, you know, string cheese, widespread, mo. we're talking, then, you know, the younger guys, pigeons, goose. Are you seeing just a continuing um, development in that, in that area from a live music and jam perspective? Is there kind of a, a linear progression and evolution that you can see? Is it analogous to before or is it completely different than where we were? What are the similarities and what are the differences? Well, I think some of these younger bands are probably more influenced by fish than the dead at mm-hmm. this point. Um, yeah. but I think they're influenced by both. You know, it started out with a little seedling in the Haight-Ashbury in 1965, 66, you know, the airplane, the dead, Quicksilver, <clears throat> the charlatans, etc. And, and uh, uh, you know, a little garden was planted and the, the, the one that lasted the longest and grew the biggest and the widest and the fattest was the Grateful Dead. And, and then all these branches started coming off and the spring would come and a new branch would come. And eventually one of those branches was fish and mo and umphreys and widespread and string cheese. And, and then more buds keep growing. And it's all from that same original little seedling that got planted in the Haight-Ashbury. Yeah. And it all comes back and every one of them has that, that mojo in their, in their DNA, you know. Um, if you're going to be a jam band artist, you probably were born with some sort of special psychedelic DNA. Yeah, Whether some kind of gene. You know, that's the music. And and it's people that are inspired by freeform jazz and improvisational music. You know, there's so many bands out there that go on tour and they play the exact same songs the exact same way, you know, night after night. And uh, I personally would prefer to go see a band that's going to take risks, even at the 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 risk of failing um, uh, in order to see if we get the reward, you know, yeah. and that's how I treat my photography sometimes also no risk, no reward, right. You know, take those chances because sometimes if you take those chances, you will get the best photographs. And if you don't yeah. take those chances and you don't get that photograph, then you end up with pedestrian images. And if you're a band and you don't take those risks, you end up with pedestrian music, you know? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of great bands, bands out there that do not improvise and, don't you know they play solid three minute rock songs and are incredible songwriters but for me personally i like the fact that i can go see a band and it'll never sound the same twice and that philosophy comes out of the grateful dead you know to never play the songs the same way twice and if you listen to the grateful dead repertoire across the decades you know like i was listening to some 77 grateful dead and um uh there's this incredible jam my first grateful dead concert was english town uh 9377 and uh it was a live radio broadcast that eventually became a dick's picks and there's this um he's gone not fade away jam that is mind boggling mind boggling and the tone in garcia's guitar during this not fade away and you know it's a cover tune it's not a grateful dead original and the jam between he's gone and not fade away and then the jam into not fade away and then uh, on Sirius XM, the Grateful Dead channel, about three, four days ago, um, I get in my car and I turn it on and they're playing it's a Not Fade Away. And I look at the radio and it was from uh, 10-1-77 oh. in Portland, Oregon. I think it was 10-1 or 10-3. It was um, yeah. basically four weeks after English Town and the Not Fade Away had that same vibe. But by the time you got to 87, 10 years later, Not Fade Away was a completely different jam you know the guitar tone was different the guitar is different the effects were different mm-hmm. you know phil's bass lines sounded different you know processing amps guitars string six strings bass versus four string you know all these things and so um you know bands tap into these different time periods of the grateful dead and you know there's 
I love 73, 74. I love 77. I love 69. Um, I love the acoustics, you know, vibe of, of uh, uh, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty of 70 and 71. Yeah. Um, I love, eight, you know, 80 when I was on tour big time was a stellar year for the band. New keyboard player breaking out all sorts of songs and played in a while. China Doll and The Wheel and all this great stuff. And, and uh, 80 was an epic, powerful year for the Grateful Dead. You know, and then Garcia, you know, by the time he got to 82, 83, Garcia started having issues and drugs and health. And, you know, he had a couple of, of, of wishy-washy years, 83, 84, 85, 86, he had his coma. He came back strong at the end of the year. 87 was an epic year for the band. Solid, strong, touch of gray, throwing stones, great, great singing, great playing by everybody in the band. You know, it stayed strong through 88 and 89. Brent died in 90 and it started changing again. So, you know, there's all these different eras. And I think all these different musicians tap into those eras and they take what they can out of it and they incorporate it into what they're doing. But essentially the the improvisational aspect of taking it to the next level is what all of them are trying to do. And that's what all of us do. And, and MMJ does the same thing. You know, I mean, you know, their jams are not the same every night. You know, they're not even close. But it's, no. You know, but, you know, they straddle the line between being an alternative rock band and a jam band, you know, in the in the genre of people who who designate these these, you know, these names and titles and, and whatnot to these artists. I mean, if I said to you, what kind of music is My Morning Jacket? What's your answer? They're an alternative. They're an alt rock band that jams basically but they're no nowhere near a traditional jam band right i mean not even close not yeah. even close i mean they could do that and they have elements of it but they right. go into kind of they occupy an entirely different region of music yeah uh, absolutely and that's why you love them that's why i love them yeah i mean you know from the first time i saw them in slims you know with 300 people or however many people were there that night you know i don't think it was sold out but uh yeah on the other hand, they are, they're doing three night runs and with no repeats, you know, and they're right. going down to Dominican Republic and playing all their songs, their entire discography yeah. in three nights. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, so that's, yeah. that's, that's the jam band element. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, I love your love of the dead. I love your, I love your work, Jay. You know, Thank you're you. an inspiration to me following live music. And um, I'm so glad that you're flying the flag for, you know, jam bands for just great music for having, you know, your appreciation of what the performers do and that living that connection between performers and fans, which is what it's all about. I mean, the live show doesn't happen without the fans and um, that the show doesn't happen with everybody without everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, the bottom line is, is that that music inspires me as an artist and I want to be inspired with what I do as a photographer and so you got to find your inspiration somewhere. And I find it in that, in, in that jam band scene. I dig it. I like it. You yeah. know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't follow along with, you know, top 40 radio or, or the latest pop hits, you know, and I've got lots of friends that turn me on to like cool new music and I dig it, but I just have a harder time, you know, like I'm old school. Like at this point in my life, I don't, you know, 25 years ago, I loved discovering new bands and I loved when I discovered the Flamey Lips and started getting into them in, in 89 and working and shooting them in 89. And, 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 and now I've spent a 30 years photographing them, but you know, like I don't need to, I don't, I don't need to chase 
new bands outside of my genre. You know, I dig the Spaffords and and the Twiddles and the you know those bands that we've already mentioned, Goose, Eggy, et cetera, et cetera, Pigeons. You know, um, I don't I don't really need to look for other stuff um, for inspiration. My daughter turns me on to some cool things. You know, she turned me on to a track a few years ago, Lana Del Rey with Sean Lennon. That was just amazing, amazing song. There's some great stuff. stuff that, there's great. There's great new stuff that's coming on all the so time. I love that. Stuff. I love this. I, I love the bandwidth for it. Yeah, that's true too, right? I mean, it's really hard to be listening to everything. You know, all the bands that you're shooting really well. You know, right. that's and that's I, am, and I love that's amazing. To you know, so I'm, I like listening to NPR Terry Gross, and I like listening to industry stuff and Bob Lefsetz and Eric Krasno. And, you yeah. know, I just listen to, you know what I just listened to? If you haven't done it yet, I just listened to the good old Grateful Dead cast. Oh, yeah, that's is, a good one. If you haven't the one where they, yet, they just went through track. Was that the one that went track by track through Working Man's and American Beauty, the reissues? Yep. That, that was, was really was fucking cool. Well-researched, best written podcast I've ever listened to. Fascinating. Amazing stuff, man. Amazing well, thank stuff. you. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, thank, any, thanks for coming else? on. Oh, I guess I should do a quick couple of little plugs here. So yeah, um, please do. If you, check, if you want to check out any of my books, go to my website, which is rockoutbooks.com. Yeah. And uh, you can order signed copies of any of my books directly from me from that website, rockoutbooks.com. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at jblakesburg or the other Instagram site that my daughter does, which is only shots that I've taken on film. And that is at retro blakesburg. Uh, and blakesburg is B-L-A-K-E-S-B-E-R-G. So at jblakesburg, at retro blakesburg. And of course, on Facebook, I'm at jblakesburg photography. That's my business page where I post my photos. I don't do anything on my personal Jay Blakesburg page. Uh, and um, I guess I'm on Twitter also at, at Jay Blakesburg, but that's really just stuff that I post on Instagram. It's the same thing. And um, so, yeah. And if you ever see me at a show, come up to me and say hi and ask me to take your picture with your friends or your loved ones. And I can, I can, I can attest to that, man. You're so. always uh, always a friendly face to see at shows, man. And uh, right. I look forward right. to seeing you at live shows again fucking yeah, wait, soon. Man. What are you thinking yeah, about Bonnaroo? Are you going to go to see Jacket? Nah, I don't know. As of right now, I'm not going to Bonnaroo, but who knows? You never know. You never know. But yeah, always, you know, I need a fix of the jacket just like everybody We're else. Jacket's doing uh, Ohana on the on the beach in Dana Point, man. On uh, oh, the end of, end of September, they moved it from like a couple of years ago now, I oh, guess. Yeah, that's close. Maybe I'll go to that just to see that the would, jacket. I'll, I'll be at that one. I'll be at that one. All right. Well, cool. All right. Stay yeah. in touch. If you need anything yeah. else for me? Thanks so much, Jay. And um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate it. Okay, that was Jay Blakesburg uh, with me for that conclusion of the two-part interview on Road Case. Um, God, I, I just I loved having Jay here. Uh, I love his uh, his stories. His access is uh, unparalleled. He's been to thousands of shows over the years, and uh, I love his story about how he got involved in rock photography and how he just continues to follow his passion. And the fact of the matter is that he produces amazing photographs, both of artists in a live setting doing what they do best, as well as still photographs and portraiture of some amazing artists over the years. Um, 
You know, I love how he also uh, enjoys documenting the scene of live music and the atmosphere. You know, he truly believes in the power of live music, and those are reflected in a lot of his atmospheric-type shots at shows and uh, showing the that intrinsic connection of the band and the fans and what that looks like. And, um, you know, he's uh, put together a book called Hippie Chicks that looks at a lot of what goes on at dead shows and jam band shows over the years. But, uh, you know, he also talked about getting down and dirty and looking at the gritty side of some pretty uh, hardcore uh, rock music in the the 90s, for example, you know, sweat and leather and just people getting into it in the mosh pit, etc., which is also a reflection of what's going on at live shows. So he's kind of really, uh, really working the entire spectrum. And uh, because of the access that he has, uh, not only to uh, what we talked about, uh, you know, that access of shooting the first three songs, but also being out there for an entire show or shooting from the stage or side stage, et cetera, and being able to capture uh, the atmosphere and the vibe and the scene that way, uh, just in the, uh, over the years and uh, with his photography. So, I would strongly urge anyone to go to blakesburg.com and check out some of the photos that Jay has there. And of course, uh, he's been published so many times in Rolling Stone magazine and uh, so many other amazing music publications. Uh, I'm sure that you've seen his photos out there uh, in the world of uh, rock journalism and documentation of the live music experience. So I hope you enjoyed this two-part episode with Jay Blakesburg, legendary rock photographer. Um, I really want to thank you for joining me for that uh, great experience of having Jay here. I want to thank Jay again for being here and spending some time with me on this episode of Road Case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And if you are able to and like to support Roadcase, we have a Patreon site at patreon.com slash roadcasepod. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. (laughs) 